Good morning and welcome. My name is John Mark Redwine. Like Ernest said, I pastor the Gathering Church in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, uh, out there in the deep south. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, like some of the people that work around here, or all of the people that work around here. I can't really tell. Uh, but hey, we love Front Range Church. We love your pastors. I was at Front Range on launch Sunday, the very first service. It was incredible. I remember just before that, Ernest had come out to the church that I was working at in California called Echo Church and spoke a message about Peter stepping out of the boat and said, God is calling you to something big, and you got to have the faith to do it. And that was after that message, my wife and I said, God is asking us to start a church. And so when I say that Pastor Ernest has been a part of our church's journey from the very beginning, I mean the very beginning. He is an overseer for us and has been for the last eight years. And uh, it, Pastor Ernest is one of those people that is a joy to submit to because he is such a good pastor and father and friend and has cared for me and walked me through some real tough seasons of ministry. I joke with him sometimes, like, sorry, man, I have another crisis I need you to manage. And, uh, and I, I have tried to follow in his footsteps so much that this past year I grew my hair out identical <laughs> to Ernest. I had short hair for most of my life. I don't know if you noticed, we were dressed pretty much the same today. And so, you know, whatever your mentors are doing, just do what they do. And that's, this, is, this is how it works out. So, well, we're finishing up this series on Jonah today. We're in Jonah chapter 4, the final chapter of Jonah. I'm going to give you a quick rundown on the book of Jonah, and then we'll jump right into chapter 4. Now, Jonah is a Jewish prophet. He's a, prophet. He's a minor prophet. God gave him an assignment, go to Nineveh, and warn them that they've got 40 days to stop their shenanigans or they're going to be overthrown. Jonah doesn't want to do this. We presume it's because he's terrified of one of the most brutal people groups of all time. Uh, and so Jonah runs the other way. Rather, he sails the other way. He gets on a ship headed in the opposite direction, but a storm comes up. The sailors are nervous, and they just, just alley-oop him right off the ship. Jonah is then eaten by a fish where he hangs out for three days in the belly of the fish, three nights until he submits to God's will, and then God's call comes upon Jonah a second time, and he goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria has been the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people for a very, very long time. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he gives this message of repentance, and the whole city repents. It's unbelievable. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody expected Nineveh to repent. The king of uh, Assyria, who's living in Nineveh, repents, humbles himself before God, and calls the whole city into a fast. And so God relents his destruction on the city, and the whole city is spared. Chapter 4 is just Jonah's reaction to that. And so he was called to go to Nineveh to tell them that destruction was coming unless they repented. They repented. Chapter 4 is just his reaction to, to how, that, how that all happened. Let's read it. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? 
Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter set in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He was so excited about Nineveh getting destroyed that he built a little house to go tailgate. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Y'all be thinking Jonah's dramatic, but some of you guys are going to act the same way when you go out in that heat today. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many puppies. Puppies added for emphasis. And that's just where it ends. The book of Jonah ends right there with God having the final word. Now, Jewish tradition gives us an alternate ending. There's DVD bonus features to Jonah. There's an oral retelling of Jonah at the end of this conversation repenting and telling God, I was so foolish for thinking that I deserve to, to not want them to have this kind of love in their life and, and grace in their life. But that's not what happens in the text. In the text... We finish with Jonah being grumpy and God getting the final word. So let's take a look at this chapter and ultimately the book of Jonah and see what we can learn from it as we close it out today. First, as we look at Jonah's reaction, it makes me ask this question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Let's take a look at these first couple verses one more time. It says, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I was trying to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, there's a lot to unpack in these couple of verses. First, we've got to start with the revelation that Jonah didn't run to Tarshish and get swallowed up by a fish because he was afraid of the Ninevites rejecting God. He ran because he was afraid that God would relent on his wrath. He was afraid they would be spared. He was afraid that God would show them mercy and that they would be redeemed by God. That's not what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted these people to be judged. He wanted them to face justice. He wanted this ancient enemy of Israel to finally meet their end. He hated these people. And God called Jonah to give that message, and so he ran so that they would never get it. So that they would never see it coming when they were obliterated. Now this changes things. This changes the story, doesn't it? No longer is Jonah some scared hero who ends up doing the right thing. He's a bitter religious person with hate in his heart who reluctantly obeys God, hoping to see God give out the justice he believes is deserved who then becomes angry when God lives out his nature of compassion and mercy. A nature that Jonah was well aware of, which is why he ran in the first place. Jonah raises a pretty big question. 
Who is worthy of God's redemption and who is not worthy? How far does somebody have to go in order to be written off, to be considered unworthy of the redemption that God offers? we got a pretty big sense of justice in this day and age. Or should I say, we have a pretty big sense of herd morality. Herd morality. You know what herd morality is? Herd morality is when morality is no longer defined by a set of absolutes determining right and wrong, but rather by what the crowd deems as right and wrong in the moment. We live in a world screaming out for tolerance that is completely intolerant of anyone who disagrees with who is or who is not worthy of that tolerance. In some ways, our herd morality has made us better culturally, and in some ways, it's made us much, much worse. But for better or worse, our herd morality has, has confused us about whose job it is to decide who is worthy of grace. The text reads, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. To Jonah. Probably to most Israelites. I mean, the Assyrians are their long-standing enemy. The history between the two of them is not great. We know that Assyria is going on for a long time. They're first mentioned in the book of Genesis as the writer describes where life began in Eden. He references two rivers, uh, Sumeria and Assyria, all of these as landmarks. This was one of the most powerful and largest nations in the ancient world. And since it's not a Jewish nation, that meant that it was a threat to Israel. God used Assyria to rise up against Israel on multiple occasions. And during the time of Jonah, they were constantly at war. In fact, only about 40 years after the book of Jonah, Assyria would send Judah into a brief period of exile after conquering Jerusalem. Assyria was a constant enemy. And so the Jewish people hated them. They didn't want them to have the same mercy that God made available to them. That mercy they only wanted for themselves. This was still a problem in the world when Jesus showed up. It's highlighted in John chapter 4 when Jesus confronts the hatred that exists between the Israelites and the Samaritan people. Now the Jewish people hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans believed they had access to God at a place they held sacred. But the Jewish people believed that God could only be accessed at the temple. They hated the Samaritans so much they'd go on a whole day's walk out of their way if they were passing to Jerusalem around Samaria. Instead of going through it, they would go all the way around it and add a day to their journey. That's how much they didn't even want to be near these folks. But that's not how Jesus operated. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Samaria was on the way. And instead of taking the normal Jewish path around the border of Samaria, he went straight through it, much to his disciples' dismay. And as he's there, passing through, in John chapter 4, he reveals himself as the Messiah to a Samaritan woman. It's a big moment in the story of the Gospels. His disciples couldn't believe it was happening. Were even these people worthy of the grace of God? The religious leaders in Jesus' time were doing this constantly as well, even within their own people. They were criticizing over and over again Jesus' decision to hang out with tax collectors, lawyers, sinners, the kind of people that they didn't want to see him associate with. They didn't think that these people deserved to be around any rabbi, even one that they didn't really like, like Jesus. They were livid about it. They were asking him and accusing him over and over of being with the wrong people. These people were considered unworthy 
of a rabbi's attention, let alone the grace and mercy of God. Even after the resurrection of Jesus in the days of the early church, this was a problem. Acts chapter 15 talks about the Jewish Christians having real problems with newly converted Gentile Christians. Gentile means anybody who wasn't born Jewish. And when they became a Christian in those early days, there was a lot of tension. These people were from Rome, Greece. They were Asians. They were Africans. There was all of these new people entering into faith. And a sect of Jewish Christians were called Judaizers and were demanding that these people conform to ancient Jewish practices and laws before they could be accepted by Christ, even though Jesus never gave those qualifications. Today, we're the same. We separate into groups. We alienate. We ostracize people who think differently than us. We draw invisible lines in our mind about who is and who is not worthy of his grace, his mercy, and his redemption. And we've all got different ideas about justice, and we're pretty adamant about it. Like, as a herd, we can kind of agree that anybody that hurts kids should get the worst kind of punishment, that they should get the worst kind of justice that we can give, the most pure form of it. But somebody who hurts criminals? Well, we're all divided around whether or not Batman should or should not be allowed to exist. Whose justice is right? Whose justice is wrong? And that's the second question that we have from Jonah chapter 4. Who gets to decide? Jonah quotes the nature of God from Exodus 34 in this passion, in this passage. He says, I know that you're a compassionate and gracious God. Now, this is the most quoted part of piece of scripture by scripture itself. It is this moment in Exodus where God reveals his name and his character to Moses. He reveals some of his glory to him. And what's happening is God is telling you the first things that he wants you to know about himself the defining pieces of his character. And so in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, he's saying his name in the the Hebrew language, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. A lot of times if we were to ask you to name the first things you know about God, what what would you use to describe his character? We would use the omnis. We would say God's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere and everything, and that's who God is all about, his power and his prestige. But the first word that God would use to describe himself is compassionate. He's compassionate and gracious abounding in love, slow to anger, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now this is who God is. He is just and he does punish sin, but he is compassionate as well. And even though he brings justice He also brings love and forgiveness. And it's measured out and the scales are not weighed by our sense of morality or right and wrong, but by God's. This chapter and ultimately the book of Jonah make the argument that only God is worthy of judging who is worthy. He is the only one worthy of answering who deserves his grace. To illustrate this, God gives Jonah an object lesson. Says the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. 
And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching... Do you hear the refrain of this passage? God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Now let's look first at Jonah's response to this. It would be better off for me to die than to live. This is the second time he says it in chapter 4, and it's not the last. He says it again in verse 9. Now what do we make of that? I think it's more than just Jonah being overdramatic to the circumstances he's sitting in. To me, it shows that there's more to the story Then we know. We don't know a lot about Jonah, his life before this, what he was going through at the time, what he had experienced, what he had been through. But based on his reaction in chapter 4, Jonah's ready to die rather than have these people live. He gets sunburned and hot and he wants to die. He doesn't like God's response and he wants to die. I think it's safe to assume from the scriptures that Jonah is not in a good place. Jonah's heart is not in a good place. Jonah's emotional state is not in a good place. For reasons we're not fully given, Jonah's in real pain. He's got a lot going on underneath the surface. And Jonah's reaction towards God's mercy on these people is a direct result of his personal pain. Because hurting people hurt people. Our pain is never only on the inside. It comes out, and the less we learn to deal with it, the more we impose it upon others. Jonah's life experiences, his insecurities, his bitterness, his hatred for the Assyrians, maybe pain he experienced at their hands, maybe experiences of someone he cared about, has informed his ability to show grace over these people. Jonah's pain is informing his opinions, which is exactly why we are not fit to pick and choose what we like in the Bible And it's why we are not fit to pick and choose of who is worthy of God's mercy and why. Because you are a totally different person when you are hungry than when you are full. Do not ask me who deserves the grace of God if I have not eaten lunch yet. You get a very different answer. We are changed and shaped by every moment of pain that we live through. We develop biases. We're influenced by the culture we're in. Our friends, the morality of the herd we're a part of. What we think is right today, we will condemn as sin tomorrow. And yet, so often, we think that we know more than God knows. We think that we are a better judge of right and wrong than God is. We think his words have lost relevancy or power because they don't make sense to the all-knowing and all-powerful me. We disagree with the calling of God. Because it's just too hard in the world that we're living in to live the way that he's asking us to live. God causes a plant to grow and give shade and then wither and die and the sun to shine bright all in one day just to show Jonah that Jonah has no control over anything and God has control over everything. The book of Job is a story of a lot of bad things happening to this guy Job. Job gets a rough go at it. 
And in the end of this book, Job finally cries out to God and questions, why is all this happening to me? Why is everything bad happening to me? Why is this life going the way that it is? And God's response to Job is just a series of questions. Job 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? His point is clear there, and it's clear again in Jonah. God created us and everything around us. He gets to decide what is moral, what is right, and who is worthy. There's two ways I want you to interpret this biblical truth today. The first one is in direct relation to you. Maybe you believe somewhere deep down in your heart that you are not worthy of God's love and redemption. Maybe you believe that because you had a broken father who did not love you the way you deserved to be loved and left you scarred and hurting and filled with a belief that you are not good enough. Maybe you had a bad marriage where your husband or wife made you feel unlovable. They lied to you, abused you, neglected you so much that you just swallowed up a truth inside that that is what you deserve and all you deserve. Maybe it's self-imposed. You've internalized this through the experiences you've lived that today you sit here and you still don't believe that you are worthy of anything better than what you've got right now. From the time you were young, you've struggled to receive praise, applause, compliments, and congratulations. You self-sabotage every relationship you've ever been in because you don't think you're worthy of being loved. But you are wrong. It is not your earthly father's place to decide if you are worthy. It is not your husband or your wife's place to dictate if you are worthy of love. It is not your right to decide if you are worthy of sacrifice. Only the one who created you and the one who made you and the one who formed you gets to decide those things. And here's what he says. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. I believe that God has made his feelings for you very plain throughout the pages of Scripture. He's loved you so much that he would sacrifice everything for you. Your value has been set, and it is so high that it could only be paid once and be paid for all. You are declared by the maker of the heavens, by the one who spoke the universe into existence, to be worthy of love, to be worthy of grace, to be worthy of forgiveness, mercy, and to be worthy of sacrifice. And you've been declared that by the only one who is worthy to declare it. And the second interpretation of this passage is the final point for today. This gospel message is for all people. Look one more time at the conclusion of the book of Jonah. It says, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, said Jonah. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. That's a bold move. God is speaking to you. You argue with him. Jonah's bold. I'll give him that. And the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant. And though you didn't tend to it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight, it died overnight. 
And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God puts Jonah in his place. Jonah, you do not have a single ounce of responsibility over these people. But I do. I made them. And I love them. And I am concerned for every single one of them and their dogs and their cats too. The Old Testament is the story of God introducing himself to humanity through his relationship with a people group that he decided to make himself known through the Israelites. But he takes attention throughout this book, as he does right here, to make sure that we know that they aren't the only ones that he loves. God's word is for everyone, even for the most unlikely people, even for people who have set themselves up as an enemy of God. It's God's role to decide who is worthy of his love, not ours. As Christians, we've done a lot of deciding who is worthy over our history. Maybe you're guilty of that. Or maybe you're a victim of that. And if you are, I'm so sorry. People are messy. But God is good. Jonah makes it clear. This gospel message exists for all people. It's for you. It's for your family. It's for the family that you can't forgive. It's for the people that hurt you. It's for the people around you that you'll never be able to agree with. It's for your friends. It's for the people you love. It's for the people who voted differently than you. It's for the neighbor who yelled at you over a property line. It's for the person who called you names and made you feel small. It's for your enemies and it's for the enemies of God. This gospel message is for all people. Second Kings tells us that this story takes place around 780 BC. History sources outside the Bible, beyond the Bible, tell us that Assyria had a period of peace lasting 40 years from 780 BC to 740 BC. In fact, for a long time, most archaeologists said there never was a city of Assyria, that this is evidence against the Bible. But in the 19th century, in the second half of it, they discovered the ancient cities of Assyria and evidence of the empire that Assyria once was. But almost all of the physical archaeological evidence, the art, the, the beautiful architecture that they're finding, pottery, the things that people were creating, almost all of it dates to this period of time between 780 and 740. This 40-year period of peace where there was a moment of reprieve, where this king led people co- closer and closer towards the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. As they were pursuing him, their their empire flourished. But people are people. And their culture changed back again from this, they were a warring, conquering people known for brutality. And then they were a peaceful, prosperous, moral nation. And then a violent insurrectionist killed and overthrew this king from the book of Jonah and led them back into war, and he started with Israel. Shortly after that, Assyria was wiped off the map forever. This is a true story. This really happened. This is a beautiful, true picture of the grace of God and the way that he cares for each and every one of us. 
just like this level of redemption and grace feel unlikely in this story, but they're still given, this kind of redemption and grace can be a part of your story as well. Maybe you fall into one of these categories. You came in here today, and you've been coming to church off and on, but for you, you've never really felt worthy of it. You, you, you want to be a part of it, but it, there's this block, this barrier between you and God where you're just like, if, if God knows who I really am, he doesn't want any part of me. If he knows what I've done, if the people in this church find out who I really am, if they find out what I've done, they won't want any part of me. But who are you to declare who is worthy of God's love? And I could tell you right now that this is a church that is prepared for every part of your story, for you to come and be vulnerable and find healing and find peace and to move forward into a relationship with the one who has pursued you since the day you were born, who desires you, who has forgiven you, and who has declared that you are worthy of sacrifice. So if you're in here today and you're ready to enter into a relationship with him, just every head bowed, every eye closed, it starts with a conversation. We're gonna pray. This isn't the whole thing. In fact, after this prayer, you have a lifetime ahead of pursuing Jesus, of learning how to follow him, of learning his practices and his ways and folding into his people, the church. And all of that is to come. And honestly, that's the fun parts of the journey. This moment right now is where it all begins. You just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for every mistake I've made. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. I believe that you are who you say you are and that you have done great things on my behalf. I believe that you are the only one who is worthy of telling me whether or not I am. So from now on, from this day on, with every breath that I breathe, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen.